today's episode of Reproducibility. I'm Zofia Krivet in Amsterdam, and I'm joined by Amy Auburn and Sam Parsons in Oxford. Hey! <laughs> Today we'll be discussing Dorothy Bishop's paper, Fallibility in Science, Responding to Errors in the Work of Oneself and Others. But first of all, how are you guys? It's Friday and it's sunny. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing well, but tired. Yeah, I'm good. Been teaching. Teaching's fun. Yeah, and I have, I have a teaching day today, so yeah, kind of just looking forward to the weekend. Not, not to the teaching, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's I, fine. I've had the exact opposite. I've been introducing like the undergrads to power and using code and sort of seeing the eyes widen and it's great. Oh. That, that sounds like proper nice. No, like I'm, I'm teaching, what am I doing today? I'm doing two hours of tutorials with medics. So that's kind of three on one, two on one, who really don't care about psychology, but need to do it for their course. And then I'm doing two hours with first year psychologists and their exams are in three weeks. So they're going to be oh, so really, really happy to engage in wider discussions that do not relate to the essay questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's fine. I think it's just it's just a lot of people. I need to do a lot of marketing. Just uh, and I, I haven't done a lot of teaching in the last few months, so I'm kind of I got used to not having to do it. So yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not as cool as Sam in being able to design my own course, more or less. Yeah, that sounds really cool, Sam. How well, did they respond? Uh, I think quite well, but also just purely because because it was all very new. I sort of made a point of making the other stuff quite easy and simple to follow. So, like, um, I I could have introduced them to kind of programming language, but thought better of that. Um, yeah, they've sort of heard of SPSS syntax, but I've never actually seen it before. But then getting them to do it with like a t-test and a correlation is kind of the easiest introduction to it as well. To so what? To, to using the syntax itself. Mm. In the sense that like if you're going to give them something new, then don't build it on something that's already complex. Yeah. Um, that so I think, I think that's what's happened before in some of the courses, kind of introducing pre-registration while also introducing quite a new statistical test to them. And therefore, they kind of have like two new things that feed off one another, and it sort of, I don't know, increases the difficulty in an order of magnitude that I think is a bit too much for second year undergrads. Um, and it's just kind of nice to fill those gaps in knowledge. Mm. Like, I've got a couple of third year project, uh, kind of final year research project students. That have said themselves like I, I wish I'd done syntax because then I could use it now I wish that I actually knew about power because then we could have used that a little bit more in kind of planning their studies and I, I just had the assumption that they would have been taught that um, <laughs> yeah yeah should you assume anything <laughs> very, very naive so I kind of I, I went into teaching this from a in the nicest way possible I'm going to assume that as a group, all of you don't know anything. So correct me if I'm wrong, but have you heard of X? And then you see all these blank faces. It's not great. Now you get to learn about it. Oh, I'm sure they really liked you. I hope so. It was very chilled, which was nice. Oh. So good. 
I think we're probably very different teachers. (laughs) (laughs) I I can imagine our styles being not quite polar opposites, but I can, (laughs) like you would have a very regimented kind of lecture plan. And I, I kind of went, all right, so this is me. This is the other demonstrators. Do you guys know Do this? Do you guys know power? No? Oh, yeah, let's talk about power. Like, but, like, that's actually really, really, I think that's, you need to make it interesting. And sometimes just making it personal makes it interesting, isn't it? And yeah. So, yeah sure. well, and, like, the silly things like chucking memes and GIFs into presentations just makes it more entertaining to my own yeah. simple mind mm-hmm. when I'm planning. So it kind of. It's a bit more enjoyable for that. So yeah, I'm going to stop playing with pen. Um, Sam loves playing with his pen. (laughs) 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 Sorry. This is where I I get like done for something awful. That new account where they're like psych pod out of context. (laughs) There we go. That happened. It's Friday morning at 9am. So just like give us some slack. (laughs) It's whether whether we use, use that or like lean into it and just... Use that as the title of the no. Let's, <laughs> let's not use it as let's, the title let's not of the podcast. Um, I, I, I could I just see. Too much. I could see Dorothy's face when we're like, we discussed your <laughs> your paper and we called our podcast this, and <laughs> she'd just be like, really? <laughs> In like this like sense of omnipresent disapproval. <laughs> Anyways. Well, yeah, we should probably not call it that. But um, before we get back to, um, well, before we start the, uh, talking about the paper, this was, so the last time we actually we actually managed to all see each other in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago because you did the, um, you were here for the network analysis workshop, right? Yeah, we learned a lot about networks um, and actually a whole range of networks, like not just kind of mark of random fields but causal networks and causal kind of algorithms that try to find causal networks so yeah it was it was really good um i'm glad i knew r like i think they said you need to know a bit of R coming to the course <laughs> but i pretty much I, I was very happy that i kind of knew quite a bit of R. I think it was a very amsterdam thing to say because they can all like do what you know they like Dutch people are boring using R and then they, they were like you need to have a little of extra like little knowledge of R that I felt bad for some people who little knowledge of R meant you know I've opened R. Um, Hi everyone Sam here taking you through this quick impromptu break. See when we start to talk too much about programming and R the very buildings in Oxford start to rebel and scream at us. Uh, obviously I'm joking it's just a firearm check um, but before we get back to the show um, if you want to support us remember to like review and subscribe say all the, lots and lots of nice things about us that's that's what we really want um, if you want to get in touch to let us know how you can make show the show better uh, we'd also love to hear from you then um, if you've got suggestions for episodes or if you know about an awesome early career researcher that we should talk to feel free to get in touch. Uh, We're on Twitter at Reproducibility. Uh, Our DMs are also open, so feel free to fire us a message. Uh, If Twitter's not your thing, you can also email us at reproducibility at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to it. Right, so as a brief summary of this paper for any listeners who haven't um, looked into it yet, um, so as the title says, it's talking about fallibility in science. 
Um, so and it's in, just for the people who want to look it up, it's in Advances in Methods and Practices in Psychological Science, the best title for a job ever. <laughs> AMPPS is a lot better to say. Um, volume nice. 1, number 3, so it came out in September 2018. Sorry, yeah. just for you to know. So Amy has the paper version, like the actual printed journal with her, which uh-huh. I think is, is why that was of importance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's good to read on the train. Um, no, it's super nice. I actually read this paper when I got the journal in like September, October last year. Uh. And then I, I went to Dorothy and I was like, oh, I saw your paper. And she like forgot that she'd written it for like a second. I was like oh yeah I forgot about that and I was just like wait what like come on that's so cool <laughs> give us yeah, some slack she gave um this talk in I mean so she says in the acknowledgement that that she gave it at uh like in Cardiff in July 2017 and she also gave this or like a version of this talk um in Amsterdam in like November or something to, in 2017 mm. um so when when at the beginning she talks about like you know oh so she's starting up. So she starts off with a um, with an example, like a scenario, right? And she says, "Oh, when when I ask um, when I ask this in seminars to to the audience, and then the response is, I was like, oh yeah, I've been there.' <laughs> and it it's not different. It was I, as far as I remember, it was no different in Amsterdam than in other places. Like she wasn't, she didn't seem surprised by by any responses, and people were still. Wait, like what what were the responses she was talking about? Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, so I mean, so in this case, the first scenario um, is about a PhD student who, um, after publishing his paper in a high high impact journal, um, realizes that um, he made a mistake. Like the groups were miscoded, and in fact, um, the this, the effect that got him into this um, high impact journal isn't there or something. Um, and then basically, like the question is like, you know, what should David do? Um, and so I, I think I remember this rough, like, like, so, like, like, so people being like, you know, oh yeah, like obviously he should say, he should, he should, um, admit it and he should, he should try to correct it. But at the same time, this kind of unease at, um, the fact that he has to do this as a PhD student, um, because like, because it's, it's seen as something that will damage his career. Um, so, yeah, which is essentially exactly what she says, I think, here as well. Well, I think um, it, it's like, I don't know, like, I've, I published a paper in January and I've had people contact me who seemingly found errors, which all didn't, ended up not to be errors. It was just me not explaining things in the right way um, that were a bit unclear, or people not reading the supplementary materials um, closely enough. But I... I just remember I, I have those emails in my inbox for like a couple of days. So I just don't want to look at them straight away because you're there going like, oh, no, oh, no. And then you kind of look at the preview and you're just like, oh, maybe this is actually wrong. <laughs> and like, yeah, you're, you're not you're not like, yeah, sure. You know, like I, I think probably once it's your like 50th paper, you might be less kind of like, yeah, sure. Like, let me just have a look. And, and, and but if it's one of your first papers um yeah you definitely you definitely feel vulnerable um but yeah I guess what this paper goes on to say is that that we shouldn't feel that way um or that it's okay to feel that way for a bit of time but 
in the end, um, you know, that error correction is is not is not that overall negative that we maybe as young researchers kind of feel if when you feel that vulnerability. I I mean yes, but I, I don't I don't think she restricts this to young researchers, and I'm not sure if I would restrict it to young researchers mm-hmm. um, feeling like this, right? Because um, if it was only young researchers, then I think we'd have a very different um, debate on on tone and stuff when it comes to um, critiques. Um, so I do yeah, but I, I guess it's it's made like the her example is is made yeah, particular yeah because it's a PhD student. You know, if it were like this really eminent scientist, you know, she says, oh, he, he this PhD student has an eminent supervisor as last author. Um, but what if his eminent supervisor, you know, that maybe she is, if the example would be about her, it'd be different, but yeah, like the reactions would be a bit different. That makes it a really nice example in a way, right? Because the, um, it's, it's really sort of saying, well, okay, in this case, like there, you can also understand the panic maybe a little bit better than if it was your 50th paper and it's it's not like this is yet, like your entire track record. Mm. Yeah. So I, was, I assume that was a tactically chosen example. <laughs> we or like see. a scenario. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's a good way to start the paper. Yeah. Me too, definitely. Um, yeah, and then just, yeah, I like I like the mention of the the doing the right sort of a doing the right thing award. Um, to um, to sort of like like the idea of giving prizes to do, to those who fess up to errors. Mm. Um, I, I saw this um, the other day as well um, in some labs in, in Germany, I think, where they also gave out um, a prize for for the best error that sort of that led them to the um, that led to the best kind of revelations in the end. And I think that's quite nice. That's a quite that, that's a nice way of, of doing that. Of, of doing like of responding to those kinds of issues superficially, um, at least, right? Kind so, of the the issues in your own research or in, in your own group's research. Um, well, so I, I actually yeah I'm sure that as well, but I actually meant yeah I should have been more specific. The issue of people of of like in more generally how we deal with errors, right? Mm. So if you give if you give at least some incentive. Um, to to be open about errors, but though I'm not sure if, if just the prize an award like this would actually lead many people to change their minds um, on whether or not they should be open about errors. Well, I think the problem is, is that in, unless the the incentives are just right, then they'll always kind of be yeah. the largest incentive for being the person that doesn't have any public errors, regardless if they do exist assuming yeah. that they're never found out, which is kind of the, the status quo, right? Like that that's still going to be the preferred state in a lot of ways because otherwise you're kind of... I, I, I think it's not likely that we'd see a case where you're kind of looking for people that have public records of errors in a direct way, if that makes sense. Like they might get... Yeah. They should get kind of bonus points for being transparent and that's great. But equally like that level of transparency isn't going to be looked for purely for itself. No. If that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's what I was feeling as well. Is like it's not, it's not really like you get benefits from it like that are substantial. I think what Dorothy also puts out in the paper is these kind of two points that yes, it's embarrassing to admit your own error, but like the other, you know, not admitting it and hiding it is a lot worse. You know, are you rejecting, and she says, the person who does this is entering into a Faustian pact to reject signs in favor of personal ambition. Um, and I do feel, you know, that that does ring true. <clears throat> and then the, the second point is that although errors can never be eliminated, they can be reduced by adoption of open science practices. And I feel that that is, that is a case. And maybe for me, like, in my code, I, I know that there are, like, every time I I check code, I often find some sort of error in what I've been doing. And what I really enjoy is in our face-to-face -face journal clubs, we have a professor in anthropology come a lot, who's, she's called Laura Fortunato, and she's kind of heavily involved in the UK reproducibility network. And also, like, a massive coda, which is also really cool. Um, but she's always like, I don't, you know, I don't assume that there are no errors in my code. Like, it's just to minimize the amount of errors in in work and that in, in kind of coding in, in industry. They always just assume you kind of mitigate the risks of errors in code. It's not kind of saying this will be absolutely perfect. And that kind of openness is so crucial for that, that we can then... Um, you know, that maybe then we'll deal with errors differently as well because they're out in the open and we'll deal with them out in the open. But for me, it was it was just so nice to hear somebody saying, like, you know, there's probably errors somewhere. You know, it's just kind of minimizing that they'll be how influential they would be or um, minimizing the risk that they were not found out at some point in time. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and that second point of um, minimizing the risk that they're not found out, right? Like just by making it as open and accessible and um, well commented as possible, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so like I, I love this sentence in this paper where it's like, you know, people worry, people often worry that if they make their code and data open, errors will be found. But that's really the whole point. Yeah. Right. So like just exactly like I um, I like that combination of go of saying well we'll always have errors and we just have to make sure that that people can find them if they're there. Yeah, and I, I think that that's how, you know, that's how science probably should be as a, as somebody, you know, as a PhD student still, for me, I do sometimes feel like, oh, look, there are people who don't make their code open in my cohort who, you know, they can sleep better at night than, than me. <laughs> um, because, you know, that people aren't, kind of looking around in your code trying to spot errors and you know I'm in a very controversial field and I, I know that that's going on and um yeah so so I think like at the moment but that's also the, the thing with open science is that you know we're open science is how you know it's clear this is how science should be done at the moment it sometimes feels like you're taking the harder path but then I think what Dorothy always falls back on is this, you know, 
but this is you you know yourself that this is the right way to do it you know you're not rejecting science in favor of personal ambition and that's going to help you stay in science longer term because it helps your mental health it helps you really feel like you have a place in science and that isn't you know just storing storytelling or bending some of the rules and and so yeah yeah you're doing it properly you're doing it properly hopefully crossing fingers well, and it's sort of it's kind of what we touched on the careers kind of episodes that we've recorded as well is that you're not only going to be judged on a single thing so say for example in your paper if someone came came around and said look you've made this mistake on line two of your code and that breaks everything then you can do something about it and mm. even if it ruins a paper you've still done other work you still kind of moved towards transparency in a very demonstrable way from the beginning mm. as long as you deal with it um well right i mean that's part of part of the point of this paper is that it's kind of that the response to um finding errors in your work or in other people's work is what's really important yeah because yeah. just like making mistakes is human that's going to happen well and this so i mean this kind of roughly happened to me in my default as well. I had a study that sort of looked vaguely promising, although this was before I fully learned about p-hacking and hacking and everything else that is actually wrong with the paper. Ran a replication. Uh, I think the first paper was in Revise and Resubmit. It was kind of on the cusp of being publishable. And it's pretty much when my Viva examiner turned around and said, so this kind of replication study doesn't replicate the results. So what are you doing about the first one? Are you still trying to publish it on its own or are you going to put them together? Or Because it seems uh, a bit of an, o an oversight or a kind of a bit of a bad faith thing to do to publish this when you know that the effect doesn't replicate in a bigger, better controlled kind of sample. Um, and I'd sort of done a lot of mental gymnastics around, well, if it comes out, then as soon as we can preprint the follow-up and then it's kind of being honest, while still trying to have that sort of self-interest. But I think, for me, that was quite powerful to get, to essentially be told what you have is your reputation. And if you can build that on, or not on the fact that you're kind of chasing essentially p-hacked results that you're um, you're not putting work out there that you know to contain either errors or misinterpretations or to not be as robust as it could be um, and I think that was that kind of happened at just the right time for me to um, to kind of really push me towards thinking actually yeah do you know what it's it's not worth it being out there that that extra line on my CV is not worth kind of giving more evidence to a theory that's flawed or um, or anything like that. Um, so how did you so how, so how did you end up dealing with it? Um, so we we retracted it. Um, I, I'm kind of not convinced that those two papers could answer the main question that we kind of set out to answer because we didn't we didn't quite have the the controls and the extra checks in that I think we kind of need for it to be solid evidence. I think so. It's either going to end up be a, a two-study paper as a sort of null-result paper, um, or because I don't think we could have addressed the main question, then I'm going to use it as a psychometric paper. So it's kind of the 
the study will still be used and get out there. So it's not going to become a file draw thing. Okay, nice. Um, but it's, I kind of don't want to use it to pretend that it gives evidence to something that it doesn't really give evidence to because that just feels dishonest now. But what I needed was that extra push to kind of say, well, actually, this is the more important thing. But So your main thing wasn't that it didn't replicate, but it, that it didn't replicate and it didn't replicate in a, um, like when, when you did it in a better setting. Yeah, so we had we had extra yeah. controls and like doubled the number of participants roughly. Okay. Um, so it was, and and looking back, I can kind of I can see for myself that it was quite clearly a P. Hackton Hart's paper because it was one of the first ones I wrote up and I didn't know any better. Mm. Um, which, yeah, and I, I think that that's one of the reasons why I quite like this uh, Dorothy's paper because. I think we kind of all have to face something like that at some point in the way that we think about the previous work that we've done. Um, what I'm really curious about in terms of the, the example that Dorothy uses, I think is really nice because it talks about the early career researcher and how they kind of could respond to this. But then my kind of follow up is, well, okay, so how, sh how should the senior researchers respond? Yeah, that's the more politically charged one, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, totally. Well, um, well, yeah. So I, I think um, that this is a, like, a, yeah, it, it's it's a, it's a system systemic thing, or like a cultural thing. So I like there's this there's a, there's a German word for this, um, and I did ask Amy before we started recording whether she knew if there was a good English word for it because I couldn't find anything online. Um, like Fehlerkultur, so like a culture of errors, which makes it sound horribly Shakespearean. Um, but just this idea that you that you think about or that you have sort of an agreed upon, yeah, well, culture of dealing with errors um, is probably the only way that you're going to, or like the, the best way to get um, to a consensus on how everyone should deal with it, right? Because in a way, sure, we said earlier that in a way it's easier for the um, for the more senior researcher theoretically to go, well, this is one of my 50 studies that are kind of important, so it doesn't really matter that there's an error in it. But on the other hand, um, it might also you know, matter even more because it's one of the 50 studies that all um, say the same thing about the pet theory or something, right? So I do think that you need something more general, um, like a more general culture of dealing with errors rather than just putting it over on, on, the on the individual researcher. Well, and on the individual early career researcher as well. So a lot of these discussions are yeah. kind of about how the, the early career researchers that are essentially carving the way for open science, how they could deal with fallibility. Whereas if the more senior researchers that have been established, if they were the people to turn around and say, well, actually, look, there were maybe errors in these earlier papers. Maybe these ones don't actually support the theory as much as we thought. That in itself would set a far bigger precedent for change. Well, I, th I think like hearing somebody senior in our journal club say, you know, I'm 
I'm sure there are errors in my work. I just make it open to as a way of dealing with them is really powerful for mm. younger people to hear. And I think that's, you know, we're now setting up like reproducibility with UKRN where we're rolling it out in different universities. It's not us doing the work, it's other early career research doing amazing work, setting up their their own journal clubs, um, looking at the our, our resource on the open science framework. And I think something that really helped us was that we had senior people here who kind of just gave things more weight. So I think oftentimes you forget how much difference it makes if you have one senior person there saying, man, I, I do this, you know, or like, I agree with this, or, you know, I would take the lead on X or Y. And so, yeah. And I think that's because culture is naturally not just a bottom-up thing. And we look up to people to, to show us how academia works. Yeah. Well, but at the same time, lots of these uh, current reforms are really bottom-up, right? Um, or, are, or at least massively supported by younger or like early career researchers compared to um, more senior researchers. So like, why, why do you think this is different? I don't think it's different, but I, I do think that um, a certain movement and a certain culture change can be helped along incredibly by somebody in a position of more power or more experience lending their support to it. You know, we, we see it with yeah. a registered report with Chris Chambers has been driving that along. We see it with UKRN with Marcus Manafa. We see Dorothy Bishop doing a lot of work on this. And naturally, the, there is a reason why these, these things are, are taking hold is that there is a huge amount of bottom-up support, a huge amount of grassroots things going on, um, and a lot of the door knocking, you know, the grassroots door knocking is happening by ECR researchers telling each other, talking to each other, helping each other. But I do find that for something to really be sustainable in the current academic system, which is still very much a hierarchy, a certain amount of high-level buy-in, is just it just makes things easier. And it gives, it gives a broader range of early career researchers who might not just be driven by idealism a bit of hope. Yeah. Because I feel like... You know, if you're if you're there and you're really worried and you think, okay, I might take that step and make my stuff open, and there's nobody in your department that supports that, and there might even be people who go against that, then yeah. then I I think that that won't work or that will be really really hard, and you need to really really stand behind that. Um, and I I also don't think we should expect people to do that in such difficult situations. You know, we we can encourage it, we can celebrate people doing it, but I do think that some level of senior buy-in is just really helpful. I, I, I see that here in Oxford on a daily basis. I mean, even the conversations that we've had before about um, kind of hiring, for example, to have someone senior say, well, what I look for is a solid skill base that is what I need to achieve the, to make the project work. So if you can demonstrate that you can code, make things open, all this kind of stuff, then that's, that's what I'm looking for for this job. Like already that changes the sort of the common perception that the only thing that you need is the longest publication list possible and everything else is kind of superfluous to that. 
that, 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 that is, I mean, I, I agree, but that does assume that um, you do have someone around, uh, like some, someone with senior who, who would make those statements. So I like, Amy, how you how you just said, you know, that we can't expect this from people who, who don't have any support or who, who even have people against them, especially as, as early career researchers. Um, so do you think that maybe then, um, right, because like, it seems like with all these, with all the open science stuff, it's at the end of the day, it's like, well, and the most effective thing is if funders and journals change their minds. So do you think that's similar here? Um, that, I mean, I, I, th I think, uh, well, yeah, so, yeah, so, well, so that journals and, and funders need to change, um, they somehow change or implement policies on this. Um, and I think Everything Hurts had, had an episode recently where they uh, suggested something like green, amber, and red retractions, for example, um, mm. depending on um, like whether it was just an honest mistake to something that is more that it, like on the other end of the spectrum um, being fraud. So, like, do you think that the, that funders and, and journals need to be um, the like a driving force here to make it more equitable um, across mm. places? I'm not. I'm not sure. In just thinking about it now, I think one of the main drivers wouldn't it be kind just thing making things more open. You know, once we, I think that one one of the drivers will be that us with more and more researchers making their code open, making their data open, and that being mandated by journals and by funders, that will force us to deal differently with error because all of a sudden there will be a wider range of error out there. And then we will have things like, I, I just don't think that, I don't know, I think it might be more of a secondary thing that will then change our culture. Because I think this talk about error, I think will be helped along by things being more out in the open and more errors and honest errors being found. While previously it would have mainly been Kind of more higher level, you know, red level retraction errors being found, but I don't know. Well, I guess that's I where like the that. traffic light thing makes a difference, right? Because then you, because the, the perception is on a kind of cultural level that a retraction means that you've done something kind of heinously bad. Whereas if it's a kind of a green retraction, however we define that, at least then it's kind of, I don't know, that that, that could be the, the super super honest transparent researcher retraction i don't know but, but, um, but, I, mean, but I mean amy basically just argued that that would be something that's not really needed because um the the main step is transparency right and i agree that no i think like, that, that, that oh, no okay sorry well no, no you mean like this amber this with well, the, like any kind of um, well, I think it, it will be, but it will come into place. You know, we are only talking about this because of this increase in transparency. You know, I, I don't think that, like, if, if the actual thing we want is a culture change and, you know, a change towards a fila culture or, as we say, kind of a culture of mistakes that is more supportive of this kind of open discussing of mistakes, then I don't think that... I don't know. I, I just don't think that these kind of flash traffic light systems would help create it. I think it's more something to deal with it. I don't know. For me, yeah, it's no, just I, the, the causal I, diagram I, is different. 
Oh, no, I, 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 I don't agree think it would cause that, it. Like that this particular example of the traffic lights, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm entirely convinced by this, but I'm not sure if, if just the transparency will be enough. Not enough in that it's, it's not going to change eventually, but in that um, if we only say, well, like, I mean, obviously, like, I think that transparency is, the, is, is key, um, like no question. But if we don't have any other sort of like training wheels when it comes to the actual culture change for a filler culture um, kind of thing, um, then that might be dangerous, both, both uh, for people who are, um, who are you know, told that they made, they made an error and for people who want to tell others that there's an error in their work. In oh. that, um, right? I mean, like Dor Dorothy's example in like when, when dealing with, with other people's um, errors that, you know, you should, um, you should give them, you should email them and give them some time to respond. Um, that made sense in the context of this example where the, this person said um, that, that originally he wouldn't do that. He would just, you know, he, he, he had a prominent publication where he just tore down someone's work. And that now that this person is older, wiser, and a lot more employed, they would be kinder. They would be kinder about this. Um, in that, right? Because kind of, I think that kind of implies that um, this could be more dangerous if you're younger and you're trying, like, if you're more early in your career and you're trying to point out other people's errors. Yeah, but um, we were talking, you know, what sort of training wheels are you talking about in kind of self-error correction? Because I. I guess I don't know if we, it's it, it feels like we're not even going to get to mainly responding to errors in someone else's work today um, because you were just, you were saying that transparency won't be enough to cause this change and that we need training wheels like what are the training wheels you were thinking about yeah I'm not sure um, and I'm not saying that really I, I don't think that um, just transparency is is not right I do think with just transparency you, you probably can get to the end goal because people will have to change as you say but I think it will just be a lot more painful if we don't try to think about ways in which we can normalize making mistakes and pointing out mistakes. Um, when some way of making mistakes not seem like they're a terrible thing, right? Yeah. Which I exactly. think is what the uh, flashlight system thingy mm -hmm. is supposed to be. Exactly, um, yeah. yeah. Um, well, maybe one of our listeners has an idea. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, if you know how to solve this problem, this huge problem of our missing error culture, um, let send us send us know. a message and come on our on our next pod, which will be about responding to errors in someone else's work. <laughs> Seems like it because <laughs> I think we probably we've gotten we've gotten through two pages of this paper, um, but I think it it it, it does. I think errors are such a key part, and it's something that is so overlooked and. And, you know, we could even st start going into you know, just this discussion culture at conferences where you kind of talk about very low level errors, you know, or like kind of that nobody goes into the meaty error of a paper. And I sometimes feel like it's like Emperor's yeah, New Clothes where everybody's sitting there and they see that something is really flawed and they, or like p-hacked or something. And everybody's just like, thank you for the really good paper. Do you think that you, with five more participants, you could have been more, you know, and you're just there going like... <laughs> What? Internally, you're just like seething with it. <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to to criticize. You're like, you know, like it's it's not part of the culture again. Mm. Even with that.
No, but that's interesting. Um, well, I guess, okay, you know, we, I know that we should, we'd have to wrap up soon, but I do think that, um, again, part of this whole problem of um, how to deal with error is because we, because there's this idea that it's, it's really, that the research is really um, not just the research, but it's the researcher as well. And I know yeah. that I said this before, but I still believe it. I still, I still right. think that there's this, there's a conflation going on of, um, of research and researcher that is, is not just unhelpful when it comes to replications, but it's unhelpful when it comes to thinking about errors as well. Mm. And that is because a it is full like m most so. errors will be um, just normal mistakes that that weren't intentional. Um, so they don't really belong to the to the researcher. They just belong to the the process of research. Amen. <laughs> okay, so we'll have a, a follow-up episode on this um, with or without a, um, a solution from one of our listeners. But of course, it'd be great if we could just have whoever um, ha shouts the loudest about this on the podcast. Um, but yeah, let's wrap it up here. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And see you guys soon. Yeah. Huge shout-outs to anyone starting a journal club. Oh yeah! More Woo! Awesome. Merch will hopefully come soon. Yeah. UCL. We have UCL Manchester, and then we've got Bristol starting up strong, and we have Cambridge doing a new term. Um, so yeah, and we'll hopefully have a couple more by the next episode. So yeah. Spread in. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.